0: Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom.
1: Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft, tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's Huzzah! A toast to breakfast.
0: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, recording late Tuesday night after the Celtics pretty much throttle the Philadelphia 76ers at home. It was close for a while, but you never really felt like the Celtics were in any sort of jeopardy of losing that game. I will get into the Patriots in just a little bit here because Elliot Wolf had his press conference Tuesday morning, and he had some very interesting things to say at the Combine, so I do want to get into that and some things I liked about the press conference, some things I didn't like about the press conference, and where this organization is heading going forward. So I do want to get into all that in just a little bit. But I do want to start with the Celtics because, as I said, we're recording right after this game. And look, I totally understand that Philly came into this game 4-7 and since Embiid went down with the injury, now 4-8. and They were 23rd in offense, 28th in defense during that stretch, and 25th in net rating. But one of the things that impressed me about this game for the Celtics is they won in a totally different way. Ordinarily, the Celtics just have their way, they're bombing threes, they're hitting their threes, they're getting whatever they want offensively, right? Like, we talk about this all the time. The Celtics, when they're hitting threes, they're basically unbeatable. But in this particular game tonight, they hit just five threes. And they were 0-3 prior to tonight when they hit fewer than 11 threes. They had only had three games this season prior to tonight where they hit 10 threes or fewer. Tonight, add a fourth game to that list, and they won. And if you look at the numbers, the Celtics were actually outscored at the three-point line 42-15, to so by 25 points. Now, part of that was Philly, if you look at sort of what Nick Nurse was doing. He tried to junk it up a little bit. He wanted to run the Celtics off the three-point line, but they made him pay. So if you look at it on the season, the Celtics, we've talked about this on the pod before, they're not a team that gets to the free-throw line a whole lot. In this game, they went to the free-throw line, 37 times 37 times so just to sort of put that into context Philly ironically who the Celtics played tonight and the main reason for this is Embiid they lead the NBA in free throw attempts per game at 25.8 the Celtics took 37 tonight okay and the Celtics only averaged 21 and a half which is 20th so that number is just ridiculous from what the Celtics ordinarily do and it's way above the team on the other side that averages the most free throws per game So in terms of the free throw line, the Celtics had a huge advantage. So they sort of make up for the three-point numbers being down because they got to the free throw line. So, and if you look at the other fact here, the Celtics have been great all season long. In fact, they've been doing this for a couple of years now. They do not foul. The Celtics on the season give up the fewest free throw attempts per game at 18.9. That is the best mark in the league, as we mentioned. Fewest free throws they give up. They've been going back and forth with the Lakers this season. They, in this game, gave up just 12, and that turned out to be 11 makes. Charlotte takes the fewest free throw attempts per game at 18.9, so they were 6.9 free throw attempts better than the lowest team in terms of taking free throws, right? Like, they held Philly to 6.9 free throws less than Charlotte takes, and the other side about this is the Celtics at eight point eighteen point nine is the fewest, so 6.9 fewer than what they ordinarily give up as the best team in the league. So what does that mean? Well, they outscored Philly by 23 points at the free throw line. So despite the three-point advantage that Philly had, the Celtics had the advantage as it pertains to the free throw line. The other area the Celtics dominated is, as I said, Nick Nurse sort of tried to junk this thing up and make the Celtics sort of drive them because that's not ordinarily how the Celtics operate from an offensive perspective. The Celtics, in terms of the restricted area, They had 24 points in the restricted area tonight, you know, just that little circle near the basket. If you look at the season, the Indiana Pacers lead the league at 20.1. So they're basically four points better than the team that's number one in the league. The Celtics are 22nd at 16.7. So they had an advantage there that they don't ordinarily get. And the points in the paint in general, the Pacers are number one in the league at 57.1. The Celtics are 27th at 46.2. The Celtics had 64. (laughs) 64. So they're way above the team that's number one in the league in terms of points uh, points in the paint. So they had a 22-point edge when it comes to points in the paint as well. So you look at that, 22-point advantage in terms of points in the paint, 23-point advantage in terms of the free-throw line, and they were a plus 18 in fast break points. So And by the way, you scored, what, 28 in terms of your fast break points. The Raptors lead the league at 18.7, so you're... More than nine points better than the team that's number one in the league. The Celtics are, by the way, 13th at 14.7. You, had, you held Philly to 10. The Rockets are last at 11. So like, if you look at that number, or the Rockets, I should say, are number one in the league in terms of eliminating that sort of stuff at 11. So the minus 27 at the three-point line doesn't matter. Why? Because the Celtics had a 22-point edge in points in the paint, 23-point advantage as, as it pertains to free throw makes, and they were plus 18 in the fast break. So this is a game where I don't want to say the Celtics needed to win left-handed because you were playing against a beat-up Philly team, and the Celtics are clearly talented enough to beat teams without their three-point shot landing consistently. Now, you don't want to do that every game, but it just showed you like, hey, when the threes weren't falling, even though it's a bad team, I acknowledge that the Celtics took the game plan that was sort of presented to them by what Philadelphia was doing, and they exposed Philadelphia's sort of junk defense, if you will, so I do think this is a good sign for the Celtics that, hey, if the threes aren't falling, hey, give it to the poor Zingas guy. Get downhill, get to the basket, get to the free throw line, as we mentioned, taking all those free throws, so I like that in terms of the Celtics winning a game differently because teams are going to try to find anything against the Celtics in the postseason because the Celtics, every series they go into, they're going to have the most talent. They may not have the most high-end talent, but they're going to have the most talent one through six of any team they face in terms of a potential playoff series. Okay, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is the defense. Because in the first quarter of the game, the defense was not good for the Celtics. And they've been great all season defensively, third in the NBA in defensive rating, entering this game tonight. So if you look at the defense, in the first quarter, they gave up 30 points on 24 possessions. So if you do the math on that, that's a 125 offensive rating. The Celtics are number one in the NBA in terms of their offense at 121.2. Philly was 125 rating in that first quarter. So not good defense by the Celtics whatsoever, right? You had a lot of blow-bys. You had some issues defensively. Well, the rest of the game, Philly scores 69 points on 66 possessions. So that's a 104.5 rating. Memphis is worst in the NBA this season at 107.3. So you went from playing like the worst defense in the NBA to dialing it up for those final three quarters looking like the best defense in the NBA. So that's major that the Celtics, there is sort of this on-off switch that they can press. I'm not saying you want to get into the habit of doing that, but what we've seen throughout this season, when the Celtics want to turn up the defense, they really can, and they were able to do that for three quarters. A lot of that has to do with personnel, too. They're just so good defensively that it doesn't make sense that they'd give up a 125 rating in the first quarter. A lot of that had to do with just, quite frankly, hot shooting by Philadelphia. Okay. So another thing I wanted to mention here is one of the things that stuck out to me, not just in this game, but has been sticking out to us all season long. Porzingis, I talk about sort of the individual stuff with him. But one thing is Porzingis is such an advantage for everyone. So prior to tonight, if you look at the assist to Porzingis, Tatum had 56 entering tonight. And of course, these guys numbers are going to go up after this game tonight, but it's not finalized in terms of the tracking data. Jalen, 52 assists to Borzingis. Drew Holiday, 50 assists to Borzingis. Derek White, 47 assists to Porzingis. So it's not just like this one two-man action, right? It's not just like Murray and Jokic, right? It's not just like Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire back in the day. It's not just like what everybody wants Milwaukee to do with Dame and Giannis, where it's this pick and roll combo. It's two guys, right? It's a bunch of different guys that play well off of Porzingis. You have four guys that have between 47 and 56 assists to Porzingis. And one of the things that I look at when I see Porzingis is sort of the numbers with him in terms of how successful they've been at the rim. So the Celtics with Porzingis on the court, this is via cleaning the glass, a 72.8 percent they're shooting at the rim. That's in the 97th percentile. And by the way, Milwaukee leads the NBA this season at 71.4 percent. So with Porzingis on the court, you're shooting better at the rim than the best team in the NBA is shooting. And the frequency actually goes up by 4.5 percentage points. It's still a low number, but it goes up. So with Porzingis on the court, you get more opportunities at the basket because the floor is spaced out. And you have guys that can just play off Porzingis, right? It's sort of like a toy that these guys on the perimeter can just use. Hey, uh... KP, come screen for me. Okay, you're going to pop this time. I'll find you for an open opportunity at the three-point line. Oh, you're going to roll this time. I'm going to get you on the roll. You can either finish or kick it out to the corner, whatever you want to do, or you'll get to the free throw line. Because what happens when Porzingis starts to roll, or if they give Porzingis the ball at the nail, teams follow him because he's just going to shoot over him. So if you just like look through some of the stuff that happened tonight, so he's a little two-man game with Tatum. He pops, and I know the Celtics didn't hit a lot of threes. He hit one early on, makes it 14 to 11. Once Porzingis pops, it's an easy read for Tatum. I'm just going to kick it out to the 7'3 guy that can shoot threes. Then the next, or a couple possessions later down the floor, he rolls off the Tatum screen, or he rolls after he sets a screen for Tatum this time, and he gets an easy opportunity, makes it 24 to 18. Again, later on in the game, he rolls off of a Tatum pick and roll, gets to the free throw line, hits both of those, and then they ran a play from an out of bounds play where he caught it on a curl. He just went downhill from the three point line and dunked it. This is a seven foot three guy putting the ball on the ground and dunking, dribbling, getting to the basket and dunking. Just phenomenal right there. Then they find a way to get him switched onto Batum, and he punishes punishes switches. This is how he has the most efficient post game in the NBA. It's he doesn't post up. Bigger guys. He's posting up smaller players. He's posting up guys in cross matches, right? And then just if you look at the total numbers, 12 free throws for Porzingis in this game to go along with the 12 boards and the 23 points. But again, when we go back to this whole idea of the Celtics winning in a way they ordinarily don't win, this sort of gives you hope for the postseason that, hey, when the threes aren't going, we're going to give it to the guy that can get to the free throw line 12 times. And oh, by the way, he helps every single player on the court out there when he screens for him. He can screen for Drew. He can screen for Derek White, which is one of the best pick and roll combinations in the league. He can screen for Tatum. He can screen for Jalen Brown. And if you need him to, he can spot up and hit an open three, right? So it just, he makes the offense so much easier for everybody else. And I just thought there was interesting that it's not like it's one single pick and roll combination. It's with Jalen. It's with Tatum. It's with Derek White. It's with Drew Holiday. That's why all these guys have a ton of assists to Christoph Porzingis. It's not just one guy. All right, by the way, I love Drew's night. And one of the things I've been looking into recently is Drew, I've talked about it all season long, the sacrifice he's made. He's given up the most shots of anybody in the starting lineup. And he does so many different things for this team defensively. I mean, at the beginning of the second quarter, they tried that 2-1-2 zone again with the two bigs on the court, Cornette and Al Horford, they had a lineup out there, a five-man group that had Jalen and Pritchard with those guys, and that group had only played 10 minutes together before tonight. They have not played well together, but I said this a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember if I said this to Bond Temps or I said it to B-Rob. I got to be patient with like criticizing lineups because I feel like a lot of times what they're doing is they're sort of feeling this out for potentially what they would do in the postseason, so I think they're just working on that zone. But anyway, Drew's in the middle of that zone sort of quarterbacking it. So they do do a ton of stuff with him defensively. And then secondarily, think about like how much different Drew's role is compared to what it was in Milwaukee, right? And I'm not even just talking about, oh, he was the second option. He's running the offense. But if you just look at it through like the numbers and the possession type, right, to do a little metric man breakdown here of Drew. So Drew this season, as a pick and roll ball handler, is getting just 2.5 possessions per game. Last year, that number was at 7.2. So that's what? 4.7 possessions. So the frequency there is 37.3% of his possessions last year in Milwaukee, down to 19.8% this year. So that's about 17.5 percentage points. That's a massive drop-off from where he was last year. If you look at his isolation numbers, he had about two possessions last year. He's down to below one at 0.9. And if you look at the percentage, the frequency of his isolation possessions he's gone from 10.3 to 6.7, so 3.6 percentage points. That's a big drop-off. And then you look at the big one in terms of the spot-ups. So this is something he didn't do a ton of last year in Milwaukee. The spot-up frequency has gone from 13% in Milwaukee all the way up to 25.6% this season. So a quarter of his possessions are spot-ups. He's up 12.6 percentage points. And if you look at the spot-up numbers they have been tremendous for Drew this season and it's sort of what he's been able to do in terms of his spot up shooting. He's been we all know this season he's been exceptional shooting the ball, but in terms of spot ups, he's at 1.30 points per possession. His effective field goal percentage is at 69.1%. That's in the 93rd percentile. So he went from a guy that wasn't a big time spot up guy last year obviously because he was handling the basketball a ton. In Milwaukee last year to a guy that on a lot of possessions he may set a screen then head over to the corner or he may just set up in the corner to begin the possession and not leave there right because they're asking him to do different things and he's been one of the elite spot-up players in the NBA this season because you think about it too a lot of them are coming in the corner and we told you that Drew Holiday is the best corner three-point shooter in the NBA this season so if you look at those numbers. He's 40 of 63 on corner threes, 63.5%. If you look at that number last year, he was 22 of 50, which is a good number, 44%. But here's the thing. He's already taken 13 more corner threes this year than he did all of last year. So he's become elite. And look, he's always been a good shooter, really. I mean, it took him a couple of years in the NBA, but he's been an elite shooter for a couple of years now. But my point with this is, He's now, as a spot-up guy, become one of the best spot-up shooters in the entire NBA after coming over from Milwaukee, where he was a high-usage guy. He was a pick-and-roll guy. He was handling the basketball a lot. So it's just impressive that he's been sort of able to morph into this role, take a step back in terms of the usage on all that. And he's been an elite role player. He's been exceptional as it pertains to what he's been able to do for this team. And so I said I loved his night. 13 points, 4 assists, 7 rebounds. He had the hard drive early on in this game to make it 4-3. And then they let him, because sometimes they say, hey, Drew, you want to run a pick and roll? It's Cornette on the court. Cornette comes up, run, uh, sets a screen for him. He gets into the little short mid-range area, a little follow away, makes it 39-38. And then in the second half, in transition, pull up three, pull up three back to back. So that's something that you love to see from Drew because he doesn't get those opportunities all the time. And then later on in the game, another Cornette screen, when they put Cornette back in the game, sets a screen for Drew. Drew uses the screen to get to his mid-range game, hits a mid-ranger, makes it 93-89. So when Drew needs to be involved in the pick and roll, he can still do it at a high level, but he can also use his spot-up game. So he just does so many different things for this offense in terms of he's a spot-up guy when you need him, when it's sort of when it's like, say, it's Tatum and three other bench guys, or it's him, Jalen, and a bunch of bench guys. He can run the offense for you, But when it's the starters, he can be involved in a spot-up capacity. And then also, he can be involved as a screener. Him and Derek White both are really good in terms of screeners. Okay, speaking of Derek White, I felt that he dominated this game even though he really didn't score much, right? He had the six points. But I told you about the defense from the second quarter on, and the main guy involved in this is Derek White. He's a game-high plus 30 when he only had six points. He did have six rebounds, six assists, and three blocks as well. So just thinking about some of the defensive plays and some of the heads-up plays that he made in this game, right away he blocked Harris and he blocked Reed, Paul Reed, a big man. He blocked those guys on back-to-back possessions, and he got the rebound both times. This is in the first quarter. He blocks both those guys, he gets the rebound, and then later on in the game, when it's 101-89, or excuse me, it's 99-89, he stones Harris And then gets Tatum a layup the other way. All these blocks are going back to the Celtics. Like you see a lot of guys, and I know he's not a traditional shot blocker because he's not a big guy. But all three of these blocks tonight, he got the rebound on two of them. And the other one, he got the ball back as well. And he got it to Tatum for an easy layup. So he's actually turning these blocks into offense as well. And then he had another play in this game when it's 55-51. Excuse me, it's 53-51. He has a contest on Harrison. Then he takes the ball and finishes the other way. So he was just outstanding. He rebound, He had a rebound, ran the court, and got Hauser an open three to make it 77-66. Late in the game, he realizes Al has a small on him, down low, zips a pass into him. So just heads-up plays and great defensive plays. And I was just looking at this in terms of sort of the defensive player of the year race. And I want to be clear about this. I don't believe that Derek White should win the Defensive Player of the Year. It should be Rudy Gobert. But my point with this is just, if you look at where Derek White is at and the impact he's had, it's ridiculous for a guard. So by the way, if you're wondering what his odds are, plus 5,000. So if you want to throw like five bucks on it, you're not going to win. But if five bucks, like if something dramatic happens, who knows? But anyway, so if you look at sort of How much better the defense is per 100 possessions? So I looked from our friends at FanDuel. So here are the top seven guys in terms of the Defensive Player of the Year odds. Gobert, Jared Allen, Wemby, Chet, Anthony Davis, Bam, and then Derek White. So if you look through these guys, the Timberwolves are 4.1 points per 100 possessions better with Gobert on the floor than off the floor. And that number would ordinarily be higher for Gobert, like, for example, when he was playing in Utah. The reason it's not as high is because he's playing with good defensive personnel, which when we get to Derek White, it makes it more impressive what his number is. Jared Allen, it's 3.4 points per 100 better. That's in the 77th percentile. Wemby is ridiculous. It's 10.3. <laughs> are, And the Spurs are so bad without him on the court, but they're 10.3 points per 100 possessions better. With him on the court, than off the court defensively. And, oh, by the way, that number would be even better if Greg Popovich wasn't such an idiot and decided that, hey, we're going to play him at power four to begin the season. And we're going to, like, center is his defensive position. That's what you want him to be, right? But anyway, getting back to my original point here. 10.3 is a ridiculous number. Chet is actually, they're actually worse. with him on the floor than off the floor. I I don't think that that means he's not a great defensive player and he doesn't have a huge defensive impact. Some of these numbers, like when you look at it, they just, they have good personnel. But going through this list here, Davis 2.9 worse, which that has to do with shooting luck. I was looking into that. Bam, 7.2 points per 100 better. Bam's one of the most versatile defenders in the NBA. Like it's him or Draymond Green in terms of covering every possession. That's why Porzingis we talked about. He's so important for this team because Bam has to say on Porzingis because nobody else can cover him, right? And Derek White is 5.5. The Celtics are 5.5 points per 100 better on defense with Derek White on the floor compared to off the floor. So if you look at that number, the only guys that are better than him in terms of the impact are Bam and Wemby. And the impressive thing about this is Derek White's a guard and he plays with great defensive personnel. Jalen Brown has had a great defensive season from a one-on-one perspective. We talked about how sometimes he falls asleep. Tatum is having an outstanding defensive season. Porzingis, as it pertains to his rim protection. Drew Holiday, despite the impact numbers not being what they've been in the past, he's an incredibly versatile defender. Al Horford still is a really good defender. So it's amazing that Derek White has this type of impact on a team that is this good And he's a guard. So it's just worth pointing out how great he's been at the defensive end. And that number, that 5.5, I bet you're thinking, well, Brian, that doesn't really surprise me. Because you see how much of an impact he has. Like it's loud. He's blocking shots. He's getting steals. He's doing all these things. He's stoning guys at the rim. So you're probably not surprised by it. But I just point this out to sort of give you an idea of how impactful he is and how uncommon this is. For a guard to have this type of defensive impact in terms of the impact metric numbers. Okay, I wanted to get to Jalen. Great game from Jalen. He goes 11 of 14. He has the 31 points, 1 of 2 from 3 point territory. Now, since the break, the three games, Jalen is now 31 of 50, 62%, 7 of 16 from 3 point territory, 43.8%, 27.3 points per game. And this is big because, remember, he had been struggling pre-All-Star break in terms of the games he played in February, the 5 games, just 16 points. That's it. And he's turned it on since coming back from the All-Star weekend. So maybe he just needed a break cuz he was he's been on fire since he came back. He had a hard drive early on 11 to 9. Transition gets to the line. He had that left-handed drive and dunk which is nice to see. And then he drove, got fouled by Bomba uh, Bomba rather hits both of those free throws. Gets Lowry on the post just shoots one over Lowry with his left hand. The only issue I'd have with Jalen in this game is the end of the first half, he got stripped by Maxi, then fouled him. But other than that, Jalen was outstanding in this game. Flawless. Unbelievable game by Jalen. Outside of that, like I said, that one mistake. But it, I think this is definitely a good sign because Jalen went from sort of not great at the beginning of the season to playing, you could argue, his best basketball of his career to a little bit of a hiccup prior to the All-Star break. Now, sort of, he's back on track. And then there's Tatum, who has... 29 points, really turned it on in the fourth quarter. 11 free throw attempts, 11 rebounds, 8 assists. Big thing here with Tatum, he's now averaging 6.6 assists in February. Really, playmaking has been outstanding. Rebounding has been outstanding. And of course, he's still getting his points as well in the flow of the offense. Like I think at times in the past, Tatum and Jalen could sort of force the issue a little bit. They don't do that anymore. And I think a lot of it has to do with they've been in the league for a while now and they have all this great personnel around them. Okay, so just a couple of possessions to point out with Tatum in this game. Off of Porzingis' screen, he's just getting right to the cup, makes it 20-14. to 14. There's no thinking he's just getting right there. Then he gets Lowry on him, who remember famously in the bubble, he had issues with Lowry at times in that particular series because Lowry was just getting underneath him. Not this time. He got past Lowry, got to the free throw line, hit both of those, and then he drove off a closeout where he was in the corner – Closeout comes to him, drives. Instead of trying to force something, finds Jalen for a little easy opportunity there. Gets Melton, who would later leave this game on him. Goes right through him, makes it 51-40. to 40. Then he drove, gets to the line off a Derek White screen where he just, he realizes, okay, they're going to switch a smaller defender on me. I'm just going downhill. And then when Philly cuts the lead, to or cuts the deficit to 88-83, you need a bucket, you go to Tatum. Hits a jumper over Kelly Oubre and gets to the free throw line to make it 91 83. The one issue I have with Tatum, when it's 9186, he takes a free throw from the wing and he follows it. Clearly doesn't get the rebound, is not going to get the rebound, but then they go the other way. Harris hits a three to make it 91-89. You can't do that. If you're the guy taking the three, you cannot crash there because what it does is it fucks up your floor spacing. If you're Jason Tatum right there, you have to floor back the other way. So that's the only mistake that he really made in the game. Other than that, I thought Tatum was awesome. So I thought it was a good night all in all for the Celtics. And like I said, I know it's a banged up team in terms of what you got going on there on the Philly side of things. But I was impressed. I was impressed with the way the Celtics were able to get to the free throw line, turn up the defense and just win in a way that we don't ordinarily see them win. So I think it was just sort of like, okay, the Celtics in the past, maybe this is a bad game like last year. (laughs) This is a game against like Houston or something where it's just sort of a no show. You're not hitting your shots. You just kind of let go of the rope. The Celtics don't do that this year. They bring it every single night, which I certainly can appreciate. All right, a lot more to get into coming up next. I want to get into Elliot Wolf and his press conference Tuesday at the Combine. Some really interesting things. Bet the NBA with a no-sweat same-game parlay from FanDuel every Thursday with TNT Thursdays. It doesn't matter if you're new to FanDuel or already have an account. You'll get bonus bets back if your same-game parlay doesn't win on any NBA on TNT game. NBA same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance to score a bigger payday. All right, now I'm looking at the Warriors in New York to take on that Knicks team that is still banged up. I like Steph Curry and company to win in New York and the Nuggets at home to take on the Heat in a Finals rematch. I'll take the Nuggets. The Joker is playing at an insane level right now, so I'll take the Nuggets to beat the Heat. However you want to play, just head on over to fanduel.com pike to bet the NBA with a no-sweat same-game parlay with TNT Thursdays. That's fanduel.com slash pike. Make every moment more with Fanduel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 plus and present in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit the ringer.com slash RG. Minimum three leg parlay required. Refund issued as non withdrawable bonus bets, which expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into off the pike. Let's transition from the Celtics over to the Patriots because busy day Tuesday for the Patriots. Of course, they're at the Combine, and Elliot Wolfe held his press conference, and some interesting things that came from that. The first one is this. He was asked about who has final say within the organization in terms of the draft picks, etc. He said it's gonna be a collaborative effort. Coach Mayo, myself, Macro, the whole staff. But at the end of the day, somebody has to make the pick, and that'll be myself. Okay. So we all know that macro has been sort of with the organization for a while, but Elliott Wolf's going to be the guy that has the final say, which we all know because he's the de facto GM of the team. And it dawned on me right there when he said that. We talked so much about Gerard Mayo and the process of hiring him. Should they have gone after Vrabel? Should they have interviewed Jim Harbaugh? We talked so much about that, and deservingly so. Vrabel's been a very successful coach. Jim Harbaugh has been a very successful coach. But we gave that a ton of attention, and certainly... A lot of other people did, too. Like, it was warranted to ask those questions. But the GM stuff, we talked about the fact that it's sort of weird, right? That they were saying they're kind of having a search, but they're not really having a search. And they were saying this whole thing about, hey, we have to talk to our internal candidates first. And it felt like at the time, it's like, oh, they just think they can remove Bill and everything else is fine. Bill was the problem for not just... The team on the field, but he was the problem for the front office. Like that's essentially the message that they were sending by not really taking it seriously in terms of interviewing external candidates, right? But we knew once there was this whole idea of Callahan had the report originally that he is the de facto GM, there was never really an official statement that says, Hey, Elliot Wolf is the GM of the team, right? And we're finding out more and more stuff as the days go on, but. He's up there. He's the guy running the organization. He says, it's my say. I have final say. He references Gerard Mayo. He references he references Matt Groh, but he says, it's my decision. So this has sort of been an under the radar thing in terms of the GM stuff. Like we talked about it for like a week. Why aren't they going after more people? But it wasn't as big of a discussion, of course, as the Mayo thing, because Mayo's the big news item and you can understand why. He's the new head coach, replacing the greatest coach in the history of the NFL. The GM stuff was sort of, oh, yeah, they need a GM, too, don't they? But the thing we were focused on was replacing Belichick. And I think when you look at this from Kraft's perspective, they referenced the internal candidates they have to talk to. They had this plan the whole time. They felt that essentially Elliot Wolf was an external candidate and an internal candidate at the same time, right? Because... Basically, if you sort of look at this thing and you look at Elliot Wolf's background, as we alluded to, some of the Packers principles the other day in terms of their drafting, some of the stuff they've done in the draft, but he was with Green Bay from 04 to 2017. And then he was with the Browns in 18 and 19. He comes over to the Patriots. And remember in 18, Elliott Wolf he was up for the Packers GM job. Brian Gutenkoos got it over him, but it easily could have been him. So that's what? You can look at that and say like six, seven years ago, he could have been running a team. So he's been qualified for a long time to run an NFL organization. So if you look at this whole idea of, well, hey, they were just taking Bill out and the front office is going to be better. It's more than that, as is what we're finding out over the past few days. What we're finding out is this is now a whole new way that the Patriots are looking at things. They're replacing the way the organization was run under Bill Belichick. This isn't just hey. We have all the same guys that Bill was working with. No, Elliot Wolfe is completely changing everything up. For example, he brings in Alonzo Highsmith, who he worked with in Cleveland and Green Bay, someone who he has familiarity with in both places, and then at his press conference at the Combine, he already revealed the way they're sort of changing things up. He said, quote, we changed the grading system. It's a little bit more similar to what we did in Green Bay. The previous Patriot system was more this is what the role is, and this is more kind of value-based. I think it makes a lot. It, makes it a lot easier for scouts to rate guys and put them in a stack of this guy's the best, this guy's the worst, and everything in between falls into place, rather than sort of more nuanced approaches. I just think it accounts value better and also makes it easier for scouts in the fall and the spring to determine where guys will get drafted, end quote. So, okay. Whether or not this system will work better than the Patriots system with Bill Belichick did over the past few years, obviously, is to be determined. Obviously, Bill's system worked for a long time early on in his tenure and then the tenure where he's drafting all these guys, the Gronks, the McCordys, the James White. Obviously, it tailed off. But the point being is it sounds like what he's saying is the Patriots were drafting for... Guys that fit the Patriot system, not just pure talent. And what Elliot Wolf is saying, at least my interpretation of what he's saying, is that this system is more straightforward and it'll make it easier on others within the organization. They're not looking for the perfect Patriot fit now. At least this is what I think what Elliot Wolf is saying. They're looking for the best players. That's sort of what he's trying to say is the difference between what he did in Green Bay and what Bill Belichick did. So now when you look at the Patriots offseason and the big change replacing Bill and Gerard Mayo getting that gig, to me, Elliot Wolf is the guy that's going to determine the post-Belichick era for the organization and whether or not moving on from Bill was the right decision. I feel like he's the more important sort of figure in this organization than Gerard Mayo because think about Mayo's job. He promoted to Marcus Covington. They brought in Dante Hightower. Mayo's going to run his defense. The defense is going to be good. I still have complete faith the defense will be good. If it's not, I mean, that tells you something about Mayo, right? Because he's going to have a lot of the same personnel. But if you think about Mayo's job, it's going to be as a leader of the organization. Obviously, he's going to coach a lot differently than Bill did in terms of the personality. But he's a defensive guy. If you look at the offense, now, Albert Breer had the reporting that essentially they offered the job to Kaylee. Kaylee didn't want it. But after that, right, it became... Okay, here comes Elliot Wolf hiring all his guys. So think about this. After now, with this reporting, they decide to go in the direction of Elliot Wolf, or excuse me, Elliot Wolf decides to go in the direction of Alex Van Pelt, who, as we pointed out a couple of weeks ago, Elliot Wolf worked with Van Pelt in Green Bay from 2012 through 2017. The other guy he brings in to help out Alex Van Pelt is Ben McAdoo as a senior offensive advisor, whatever the hell his title is. He worked with Elliot Wolf in Green Bay from 06 to 2013 obviously overlapped a little bit there with Alex Van Pelt. So they know each other too. So those are long relationships with both those guys that Elliott Wolf has. Then you look at some of the other hires. T.C. McCartney, the new quarterbacks coach, worked with Van Pelt in Cleveland. Scott Peters, the new offensive line coach, worked with Van Pelt in Cleveland. Now they did bring in Tyquan Underwood, former Patriots receiver. But basically it's two guys that Elliott Wolf has a ton of history with in terms of Van Pelt and McAdoo. And then McAdoo brings in two guys that he has a ton of familiarity with. So this has now become Elliot Wolf's offense, right? In terms of the guys that he brought in. And so when you also look at the fact that we're we're sort of pointing this out in real time, like how this is all happening. But after hearing him speak today, he basically referenced, yeah, I guess Macro is the number two guy because of his familiarity with the Patriots organization. But what has now happened is this has now become Elliot Wolf's organization. So we talk about Bill, or excuse me, Mayo replacing Bill, blah, blah, blah. And Kraft got his coach. Kraft pick his, picked his coach. But it was Wolf who then, after the Kaylee thing fell through, picked his offensive coordinator, picked his senior advisor in McAdoo. It wasn't Mayo's, right? I mean, Mayo didn't have any relationship with these guys. It was Elliot Wolf. Wolf gave Mayo his defense, and he put together the offense. So it's really gone from Bill Belichick's organization. To Elliot Wolf's organization, we talk about this being Mayo's team now. It's really Elliot Wolf's team, and I don't mean to that to be an indictment on Gerard Mayo. Gerard Mayo is still the head coach; he's still obviously an incredibly important figure. But I just feel like the responsibilities now of Elliot Wolf are way more important than the responsibilities of Gerard Mayo. And I don't mean to minimize what Gerard Mayo has to do, but he's going to be making the third pick, Elliot Wolf. He told you he has final say. He's going to be making the second round pick. He's going to be making all the picks in this draft. He's going to be making all the signings in the offseason. He put together the offensive coaching staff. This is now his organization or his team, like it or not. And they don't view him. This is where I think it's interesting in terms of the relationship that Elliott Wolf has in this organization with Kraft. They don't view him as a bill guy like Matt Rowe. If you promoted him, he's a bill guy. He learned all his football stuff from Bill, right? He's been working in the organization for years. Even if you brought back some of the guys that had worked here previously, those guys had worked for Bill. The John Robinsons, the Dave Zigglers of the world, those guys came up under Bill Belichick. Elliot Wolf didn't, right? And I imagine the Crafts love this. He has a familiarity with the Patriots organization, and he's been elsewhere, so, this is sort of perfect for Robert Kraft because he has a relationship and he's had a relationship for a couple of years now with Elliot Wolf, but also Elliot Wolf is not a Bill guy. So, his principles, the way he's running things, are going to be different from the way Bill was, which obviously Kraft, whether this is right or wrong, I'm just pointing this out, Kraft wanted to get away from the way that Bill was running things, right? So, the other thing I would say in a weird way, it's similar to. When they hired Belichick, when Robert Kraft hired Belichick, right? So Bill had worked here previously, as we all know, for Parcells. Now, we all know Robert hates Parcells and Parcells hates Robert. And (laughs) and we talked to Matt Hamacek the other day. It seems like those two guys really still don't like each other. But remember, after you had Pete Carroll flaming out here, Robert Kraft brings back Bill Belichick, right? That whole famous trade with the Jets. But he had familiarity with Belichick. He admitted... That he had wished he had hired Belichick instead of Pete Carroll the first time. Like he wanted to, he just didn't do it. Maybe part of that was the relationship with Bill Parcells, right? So now, in a weird way, this is similar. Belichick brought in Elliot Wolf to the organization a couple of years ago. Kraft gets to know Elliot Wolf. And even with the falling out with Bill, Robert Kraft obviously thinks really highly of Elliot Wolf to the point where they don't have an external search for a general manager. He just gives the job to essentially Elliot Wolf. So it's a very similar situation because Kraft had a relationship with them previously. so Kraft had this thing planned the whole time. when we talked about the internal candidates, when he talked about him at the press conference for Gerard Mayo, he knew the whole time that Elliot Wolf was going to be the guy. So for so long it was basically Bill doing two jobs and everything falling on Bill running the organization and coaching the team. Now we're gonna find out if Elliot Wolf can get this franchise going and get it back on track as it pertains to the personnel and not just drafting guys, but going out there in free agency as well. He said his philosophy is draft, develop, and extend. So the Packers famously, they never signed big name free agents during the stretch that he was there, right? We're talking about essentially once in a while they'd bring in a big name free agent like a Charles Woodson. Other than that, it's A.J. Hawk. It's B.J. Raji it's Clay Matthews, it's Devontae Adams, it's Jordy Nelson, it's Randall Cobb, and they're extending all these guys, right? Of course, they had Aaron Rodgers that whole time as well, but they're extending their own guys. They trust their draft process, they trust their evaluation, and that's how they build their team. That's how most good teams do it, but the Packers even more so than most other teams. So now, like it or not, this is Elliott Wolf's Patriots, and Elliott Wolf is going to determine the future of this organization. It just sort of dawned on me today. I probably should have thought about this sooner, but... Elliot Wolf now determines the fate of the Patriots going forward because he's the guy that is making all these decisions. Okay, so speaking of Elliot Wolf from his press conference today, a couple of interesting notes. So he was asked about Dugger and you. Of course, we talked about them the other day. He said, I would say that all options are on the table. We definitely want to keep Mike and Kyle. We're hopeful to continue to work with Kyle's agent and Mike to make that happen. Obviously, as we talked about the other day, on when you fired his agent, we'll see if he hires new representation, but that's why he just says Mike. He doesn't say his agent. He added, we've had conversations. I'll keep whether they're productive or not to myself. He then added that on when you as a core player. So if they wanted to tag one of these guys, Duggar would be 17 mil on when you would be around 21 mil and Elliot Wolf said the tag is something they could use. I also talked about the other day that the fact that I thought only one of Duggar, Bourne, and Unwenu would be back. But I'm more optimistic that Onwenu and Duggar could be back now because of this whole idea of draft and develop and extend. I mean, he literally said draft, develop, and extend. These are two of the best players you've drafted since 2020, right? I mean, if you think about the players the Patriots drafted since 2020, it's Onwenu, it's Duggar. Uche is sort of a one-trick pony as a pass rusher. He's going to be gone. It's Christian Gonzalez. I mean, there's other guys we can point out, but those are two of the better guys who's drafted over the past couple of years. I mean, Barmore is obviously a stud. Love that guy. Demario Douglas is going to turn out to be a really good player. But those are guys that you would want to keep based on his philosophy. And maybe one of the things, if you look at it here, is Elliot Wolf may look at this and say, hey, we're not really going to upgrade over on Wenyu. And that's why he said he was a priority today. You're not really going to upgrade over Duggar. Duggar's a really good safety. So don't create more problems for yourself, right? And this also, if Elliot Wolf gets these guys done in terms of contracts, it also sends a message, right? Hey, the Jacoby Myers thing, I would not have operated that way. I'm, I'm speaking like as if I'm Elliot Wolf. He played well for us. I would have signed him, I would have rewarded the guy that we drafted. And we don't want to lowball our own guys. We want to keep our guys here. So it does sort of create a better atmosphere. And it does send a message to the rest of the guys there like, hey, if you play well, like Kyle Duggar has and Michael and Wenyu does, we're going to pay you market value to stay here because we want you to stick around. Okay, so that's one thing. He was also asked if the culture is changing. He said, I would like to say yes. And I think the answer is ultimately going to be yes. It's easy to say the culture has changed, but there are no players here right now. But certainly, there's more of an open, less hard-ass type of vibe in the building that we can move forward with. Okay. So, I did not care for this comment. He could have just left the culture thing and not said anything else. A less hard-ass type of vibe, it's a direct shot at Belichick. And I'm all for Wolf doing his own thing in terms of, hey, he's completely changing how they're... Sort of evaluating players, completely changing the philosophy. And if he wants to say they're changing the culture, fine. But this comes across as ungrateful and, quite frankly, unnecessary. And this has now become sort of a theme of the offseason. We've seen it with the Kraft smear campaign that I've referenced on multiple occasions. Remember, we had the Wickersham story where Kraft basically told, said to somebody after Brady won the Super Bowl, Bill told me he couldn't play anymore and he goes out and he wins the Super Bowl. And then you had the nuggets in the athletic story from Chad Graff, where he said under Belichick, very few in the organization had the sway to make even small suggestions to the head coach. Scouts spent years getting to know prospects, but were quickly overruled by Belichick once he began his draft prep. So basically saying that Bill's a tyrant, right? So probably part of why Wolf has also mentioned that his system is easier for scouts It's probably why he referenced that. I'm sure that appeases Kraft. but. Just say we're doing things differently. You don't have to take shots at Bill the way, essentially, the Crafts did. But now, because of this craft smear campaign that's been underway, seems like it's popular and okay, I guess, for people within the organization to take shots at the greatest coach of all time. I personally have just had enough of it. You had a great 20-year run with Bill where he won you six Super Bowls. It didn't end the way you wanted it to end, but enough's enough for guys to just come out and publicly to just take shots at Bill. Time and time again, I'm just, I'm sick of it, quite frankly. Okay. Anyway, on and and this is not to me. I'm not saying that I don't think Elliot Wolf could do a good job here. I just thought that that comment was unnecessary. I like a lot of this stuff I'm hearing hearing from Elliot Wolf, and I get into that in a second. But the Bill stuff is just getting out of control. Okay. On adding pieces, mainly weapons. He says, in terms of physical skills, we need to weaponize the offense. We need to be faster, more explosive on defense. Height, weight, speed, playmaking ability. There will definitely be an emphasis on those things. The defensive stuff, I'm not as concerned about. I do think there's good personnel there, and I believe they're, they'll be really good again on the defensive side. Barmore's a monster. Gonzalez is a building block. We'll see how the rest of the free agency stuff goes, as we were alluding to. But I'm much more intrigued about the offense. And when he says weaponizing the offense, we've been having these conversations for years. So whether they do it in free agency, whether they do it in the second round of the draft, which was popular for Elliott Wolf when he was a member of the Packers, They need to get a premium weapon. So I'm glad that he said weaponize the offense because that's how I interpret it. They're going to try to get an alpha of the offense in terms of somebody on the perimeter or a tight end, somebody that's a number one option. Okay. He was asked about the quarterbacks in the draft. And one of the things he was asked about is what he looks for in a quarterback. First of all, being someone that can elevate his teammates, someone that your teammates want to play for, I think that's an extremely underrated thing that people don't really talk about that much. Leadership's important, and obviously you know physical talent. Body language on the field is very important at that position. You don't want a guy that's throwing his hands up after a bad play, or you can see him physically pointing at somebody. Everybody's looking at the quarterback. Okay, so what do you think he means? Mac Jones isn't his guy. He literally referenced body language. Mac has like the worst body language of all time. He was asked directly about Mac and Zappy. He said, I'm glad you asked about Mac and Bailey. We're not going to be a program that's talking about these guys in terms of through the media. We're going to do what's best for the team behind the scenes. And the strategy of that is going to be myself, Gerard Mayo, Macro, and we're going to try to do the right thing for the team. So basically saying, yeah, we've talked about Mac. We're not going to tell you anything publicly. If Mac does have, quite frankly, any trade value, it's not worth talking about Mac publicly. It just doesn't do you any good to do that. It, It makes no sense. So I totally agree where it's coming from, but I did think it was interesting that he pointed out the body language. He goes on to say, the main thing is trying to do everything we can to support the person once they get in the building. We're going to make the best decisions we can in terms of who that person is. If we decide to go with a quarterback at three, really just putting every resource and everything we have into the person to support them and make sure they're the best version of themselves. So I do think this, this partially is talking about what happened with Mac in terms of three different coordinators in three years, flipping out offensive line coaches, having Matt Patricia do the play calling and be the offensive line coach, having a lack of weapons. He already had talked about weaponizing the offense. I think that's part of it is he wants stability, and that's why he brings in this guy in Alex Van Pelt that he knows is stable. He's not going to get a head coaching job, right? He's been in the league forever. So I think there is something to that in terms of he doesn't want the same atmosphere that they had going on when Mac Jones was here. He also did say they're going to meet with all three quarterbacks in terms of Caleb Williams, Drake May. And Jaden Daniels. So to me, this is huge. That they're meeting with all these guys. And it basically, to me, signals that they're taking a quarterback with a third pick. He he went on to say, I think when you look throughout the league, most of the quarterbacks are first rounders. I think there's exceptions to be had, like Dak Prescott, Brock Purdy, and Tom Brady. But I think the league-wide understanding of how important that position is and how important it is to have somebody there that can help you win games and get over the hump has changed league-wide. So they're taking a quarterback with the third pick, okay? By the comments that he said today, and I feel good about that. I told you a million times I want them to take a quarterback. So this is like one of the best things I've heard pretty much all offseason. Okay, just real quickly on the Bruins. I'm watching that game late on Monday night. they lose in a shootout again. This time they lose 4-3 to three to the Kraken, and, and this is despite a three-point night from Pasta who was awesome in that game. But the Bruins have now gone to overtime in six straight games. Four blown third-period leads during that stretch. And they did come back and win one of those games. But if you look in that Kraken game, outscored two of uh, two to one rather, of course, in that third period. The Corsi rating, block shots, shots on goal, and missed shots, thirty to eighteen in favor of Seattle. The shots, just normal shots, fourteen to nine. Canucks outscored the Bruins two to nothing in the third period. The Corsi thirty-nine to twelve in favor of Vancouver, seventeen to five in just shots. Oilers game. Now you were outscored three to one in the third period. Now the Bruins won that game, of course, but thirty-one to seventeen in terms of the Corsi, eighteen to ten in terms of shots. So the Bruins now have this like huge third period issue that they haven't found a way to address during this road trip. You also have another issue with the team where Derek Forbert missed a team meeting. So that's it. This is a veteran guy on your team who has not played well. I illustrated that the other day. Ever since he came back from the injury, and quite frankly, he hasn't had a good season. He's been banged up. He has not been good. He's missing a meeting. So third periods are an issue. You're missing meetings. And then the goaltending hasn't bailed you out like it has previously throughout the season. So if you look at just since the All-Star break, Swayman is 19th of 34 qualified goaltenders in save percentage, 904. Olmark is 20th at 903. Pre-break, you had Swayman second at 9.25, so what, 21 percentage points in terms of the dip off, 17 spots in terms of the ranking. Olmark 9.12, so what, nine percentage points ninth in terms of or nine percentage points, and then what he fell 11 spots. The high danger save percentage, just where guys really bail you out. Swayman 8.18 since the All Star break, which is 21st. Olmark 25th at 7.94. Prior to the All-Star break, Swayman was 10th at 833, so down 15 percentage points in, what, 11 spots. Olmark was 837. That was 8th, so he's down 43 percentage points in 17 spots. So all these things that have been sort of strengths of the Bruins, goaltending hasn't been there since the All-Star break. They're not closing out games whatsoever. They have issues with guys missing team meetings. It just feels like This team needs some sort of jolt if they're going to go for it. And that's why I come back to what I was saying the other day about the trading deadline, that this team is going to have to make a move. We'll see what it is. But right now, as this team is currently constructed, they have problems. And it doesn't seem like it's getting better anytime soon. All right, coming up next, we'll check in with producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan.
1: This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft, tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's.
0: Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, I'm feeling great, Brian. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, man. I'm feeling good. The Celtics are playing well. I mean, the Bruins sure are not are. playing well, so that kind of stinks. I enjoyed the Elliott Wolf press conference. That was an interesting thing today. So I'm doing pretty well, mm-hmm. man. I think that the the most satisfying thing about the Celtics win is... Just the fact that they did it differently, man. They usually don't win that way. And I get Philly stinks, but usually, I mean, you can let these teams hang around. I know the Celtics did a little bit of that, but you always felt like they were going to win this game. And it just, every night, they could, like, this is what's different with them compared to last season. Mm -hmm. Like, if you go back to two years ago, they had to play like this every game down the stretch because they were bad, not bad, but they were mediocre in the first half of the season. Then they turned it around. They became the best defense in the NBA with E-May. So they had to play that way down the stretch of the season, right? Last year, they would play around with their food a little bit. This year, the difference is they want to win every night and play the right way. Like even Missoula after the game when he was asked about the lead they have in the Eastern Conference. <laughs> I saw that. yeah. He's like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So yeah. I think they're just all about building up the right habits, doing things, trying different st- – because here's the thing that they have working for them. They're so good – and, they, and I know Joe doesn't want to talk about the lead. They have such a big lead, they can just try different things. They want to play two bigs with Cornette out there, then go ahead and do that. The one thing I will say is at some point, and this is not a this is not like a major thing, I would like to see some Tillman. And maybe that'll happen like with <laughs> yeah, Maybe that'll happen in a back to back coming up, right? Where Al or right. Porzingis don't play, depending on or maybe it'll happen whenever their next back to back is. I gotta look at the schedule here. Because obviously Al and Porzingis are gonna switch those games, and you can look at it from that would be a, t- a time to say hey let's give uh let's give Tillman a look here because hey we may need him in a certain playoff series and maybe he does it against a team that he thinks potentially they could match up in the playoffs against i'm um, looking at their next back to back is not until the 11th yeah 11th and the 12th so hopefully he can get some play time too. before then maybe it's against the warriors maybe they go small against the warriors at some point on sunday because now i mean i alluded to the schedule coming up Dallas on Friday. Cannot wait for that. Kyrie back in the garden. Mm. Dallas, by the way, they lost in a crazy buzzer. I saw that, that shot. That? Max, <laughs> yeah, Strip, that game that. was crazy. Yeah. I mean, Luca went nuts in that game. They still ended up losing. And then you have Golden State on Sunday. Like the the garden this weekend is going to be electric. I may have to get there on Friday now that I'm looking at I this. Get there, I may have to get there, man. Gotta go on Kyrie. I could do that. That would be fun. Um. So, yeah, Dallas at home golden state at home sunday and then you go to cleveland you go to denver you go to phoenix like this is gonna be a fun stretch
1: and then even beyond that they got a tricky road trip after that yeah but um i hear you on that it's gonna be fun and it's definitely makes you feel like a little better sleeping at night when they win these different ways and it's almost like there's some people look at this part of the season like dog days i guess you're kind of getting ready for the stretch from but at the same time it's a It's a nice little like uh, laboratory to try some new stuff out. I think that's a really cool way to approach the season and kind of a rare luxury when you can blow out teams and also try out new lineups like that. That seems like a pretty good green flag for going far in the playoffs.
0: Yeah. And I like the fact that they're going to get tested here, right? Because they've been playing. And look, not to say that the Celtics have to prove they're a great regular season team. They are. They're 46 and 12. They're beating the shit out of teams, mm-hmm. right? But it is cool that they're going to have all these premier matchups in a yep. row here. Totally. I'm psyched. Who's going to get the most minutes on Luka? I don't know. JP? It's going to be Jalen. Jay- remember, Jalen took him on last game. and He did well. So I think it's going to be Jalen again.
1: He seems to be uh, hunting for those matchups when they play someone good. And he's been, like you mentioned before, he's been so much fun to watch since the also break. So that'll be fun, them two going up against Yeah, well, and the thing about
0: Luka when the Celtics played him, he got his raw numbers, but it took him a million shots to get there. And I think the thing the Celtics do, right. and not many teams can do this because they don't have the personnel, the Celtics don't send any doubles at him. They don't blitz him, right? So they're not playing five on four defensively after you go after and you try to take Luka out, or I should say four on three, you're not playing that way because the Celtics are just going to, they're going to switch that. They feel comfortable switching with a lot of guys and they're not going to double them. They mm-hmm. don't double stars. Like i they've got burned by a couple of stars. Like Shea burned them for a while until Tatum sort of put that fire out a bit in the fourth quarter. They don't do that because they have so much faith in their rotations and their personnel mm-hmm. to begin with that they're not going to do it. So I, I envision that's the same way they're going to treat, treat Luka in that game. I could see Kyrie. Yeah, like, I mean,
1: he'll get his, but doesn't mean they're going to win. Yeah, I
0: could see Kyrie having a big de- game, as much as I hate to say. I hope he doesn't, but it's like, <laughs> his last, uh, like, the Brooklyn series, he he was, like, unbelievable in the first game when the Celtics swept oh, totally. him. He was awesome. And then he just shit the bed for the rest of the series. It's like the Tatum <laughs> buzzer beater broke the nets. Like, they, th- they couldn't cool respond play. after that, so... We'll see. I look forward to those next two games. And the Warriors, man, I just want them to beat the Warriors. I'm sick and tired of losing to the Warriors. I mean, they had them beat the other game. Yeah. And then I think back to last year, the, the worst losses loss they the had. Season, like, the think. Christmas loss last year, or not the Christmas loss. It was before Christmas. It was like the week or two weeks before Christmas. It was in December. I know yeah. that. And I'm like, oh, God, what is going on? But the Warriors have something on them. I hope they... That's why I'm like, eh, I don't really like Draymond talking about Tatum on his podcast and the MVP stuff. I, I don't want, I, I think this is like Draymond trying to get into their heads like, oh, JT, you're so good. you're so, And I know. He is yeah, in there. I don't want him to do that. Okay. <laughs> don't take the bait.
1: You know what I was thinking too, Brian, is that, uh well, Grant Williams isn't going to get his homecoming because he got traded. How sad.
0: Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. They put, so, oh, yeah. they I don't know. I feel like he, there's a little something. Oh, is Charlotte coming, coming back here this year? One of the last games of the season, the 12th of April, Grant will be in the building when the, the Celtics have absolutely nothing to okay. play for.
1: <laughs> He'll get something at least. Yeah.
0: All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus in president select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas star casino, LLC gambling problem. Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona 1-888-789-7777 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text hope in